0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 178, and this one is a bit unique. It is a special episode between myself and another fellow podcaster, that being Sal Dahar, the host of the Angel Invest Boston podcast. I have been a long-time listener to Sal's podcast, so I was super excited to collaborate with him for this bonus episode. If you've ever wanted to learn about the background story of VentureFizz and the VentureFizz podcast, then this is an episode that you don't want to miss. In this podcast interview, we also discuss my background and the entrepreneurial roots and work ethic that I learned from my dad. How I got to the point of founding my own recruitment firm, which focused on working with venture-backed companies. Lots of details on Sal's professional career and how he got into angel investing, plus the details on his area of focus for making investments, tips on building a podcast and growing your audience, including the number one channel that you should be focused on, and a lot of fun back and forth banter. All right, without further ado, here's our interview.
1: I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Sal Daher, the Angel Invest Boston podcast, and I have a surprise for everybody today, because on the other line I have Keith Klein of the Venture Fizz podcast.
0: Hey, Sal, how you doing?
1: Tremendous, Keith. We thought we'd create an episode that could be shared to both of our audiences, and so we sort of like want to talk a little bit about what each of us does, and then take it from there. So, Keith, why don't you tell me, you know, what Venture Fizz does? you Know how you came about uh, doing this?
0: Sure. So, uh, first and foremost, I'm excited to do this. It's good to talk to a fellow podcaster.
1: Not just a fellow podcast, a fellow podcaster who is involved with startups in the Boston area.
0: Yes. Good point. Yes. A lot of commonalities, but also some uh, some differences. So, we'll get into that. But yeah, so I started Venture Fizz. Uh, actually, my background is uh, recruiting. So, I ran my own search firm about, uh, you know, it was about 15 years that I was running that. And uh, the last Economic recession. So 2008, 2009, there wasn't a lot of recruitment work to be had. So I uh, started VentureFizz as a side project of me already keeping tabs on who's hiring, who's getting funded, what events you should go to. Uh, so I started it as a complete side project just to, to keep busy and kept up with it for several years to the point where it became a, a self sustaining business. And I put my uh, search firm on hold three years ago to focus on scaling VentureFizz. So it's evolved quite a bit, but today we're the uh, leading authority for jobs and careers uh, in tech. So we cover three markets, that being Boston, New York, and uh, remote jobs.
1: Ah, that is tremendous. And you have The Voice, which is the Venture fizz podcast. You also do posts on LinkedIn. Where else do you show up?
0: <laughs> you got to be everywhere these days. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, the podcast I started about, oh, geez, I'd have to double check. We're up to episode 171 now. So it's been uh, a couple years you know, I've always been a consumer of, of podcasts, even going back to, I think it was Greg Gallant. He had a podcast for entrepreneurs in New York that was amazing. And I remember I used to download episodes to my like original iPod, and I would connect it, <laughs> yeah, I would connect it to the um, radio frequency in my car. That's how far going back this is and yeah. so anyways i used to i always consume a lot of uh, podcast content like jason calacanis and this week and stuff so i always wanted to start my own so it's uh i had a, a gentleman that was working for me alex calafi who had his own podcast that he did with some other friends of his um so he he allowed me to you know test the waters and he handled kind of the technical side of getting it up and running ah. yeah i was just uh, it was a great opportunity because i just love the entrepreneurial journey the story behind uh how you know someone comes to the point of starting a company to building it and the trials and tribulations behind it i listened to how i built this quite a bit with guy Raz.
1: oh i love that i listened to guy Raz. actually i started out listening to jason Calacanis mm-hmm. as well He's actually been on my podcast. I've met him. He's quite a character. But Guy Raz, the production value of his podcast, I highly recommend that everybody uh, who's interested in startups, they should listen to both Guy Raz and to Jason Calacanis. Very different. Uh, Jason is much more specialized, and Guy Raz is much more accessible. If you're not a business person, I think Guy Raz is really the the on-ramp for the business because he he makes he goes out of his way to create content that is really accessible, highly produced, beautifully done, short. Anyway, you had somebody kind of help you get onto the podcast wagon, and please tell me how it went.
0: Shockingly well, I guess, because I was just like, oh, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> I, I interviewed Christina Luconi, the chief people officer at Rapid7, and I did like a first season one was kind of like, I was just like, let me just figure this out. So I talked to all talent acquisition and HR professionals for like the first 10 or 11 episodes and kind of get the hang of it, you know, focus on a domain that I knew really well. Clutching your security blanket. Totally, totally. And, uh, you know, after I actually listened to the first episode a few months ago and I expected to be horrified and I'm like, wow, that actually wasn't so bad. Um, <laughs> and, so, and I think it's just because, you know, I've got you know, 20 plus years of experience interviewing people for jobs, but I think it's just kind of a natural extension too. So yeah, and then after that 10, 11 episodes, I realized you know, I wanted to, to talk to founders and investors, so I uh, have been doing that ever since.
1: Yeah, the drama of building a new company is just so absorbing. Lots of stories to tell.
0: Yeah, everyone has a unique story, and I mean, I mean, your podcast gets into you know so many great, great you know backgrounds and you know, how the person you know hit that aha moment. And
1: <laughs> no, actually, I, I do listen to your podcast as well. For example, I remember listening to Russ Wilcox. Your interview with Russ Wilcox. I knew Russ because Russ listens to podcasts, and he had sort of he listened to my podcast, and he kind of connected. And I met him uh, here in Boston, and we're you know sort of investing in similar things. His e-ink, being a platform technology, has a lot in common. I invest in platform technologies, particularly in the biotech space. And, and really, re- that business of his, about every time a board member came up with a new use case for e-ink, they find him 50 bucks. Right. Yeah, <laughs> 50 bucks is more money than, you know, as a punishment, because it's so easy to come up with a use case. It's so hard to actually develop it. And I see the same thing with some of the the, uh, biotech startups that I'm involved with. But anyway, so you were surprised at the outcome setting up this podcast. What is it that you've seen from it that you didn't expect?
0: Um, Well, I just think it's good for branding first and foremost. You know, I I do it hoping that others will either get inspired or learn something from each episode. I mean, the Russ Wilcox episode is definitely a, a great one where and that story just needs to be told. I mean, it's groundbreaking <laughs> technology that took 10 years to hit you know, product market fit. And they were on the verge of failing before um, Jeff Bezos.
1: <laughs> yeah. Let's set it up a little bit. E-Ink, for those who haven't listened to the podcast, you should go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, Russ Wilcox was co-founder of a company called E-Ink. He was the business guy. And there was a professor at MIT who had developed a technology for this ink that you can change the color of it, use it with electricity running through it. And it's the technology behind the Kindle and all these other e-readers that exist right now. Uh, it's they all use the same technology, the e ink technology. And they were absolutely nowhere, as as Keith was telling. So please continue.
0: Yeah. I mean, they launched in uh, Japan, I think it was, and it was a failure.
1: Oh, Sony. Yeah, that was a total disaster.
0: Yeah, it was Sony. Yeah. And, and then uh, a few of these handhelds ended up on Jeff Bezos' desk. And he was like, this is the future, and I'm going to cannibalize my book business that you know, I'm selling through Amazon with yep. the future. And uh, you know, it kind of rest history of you know, E-Ink and getting on the map. And then they you know, powered the Nook and all the digital readers of that generation and obviously uh, still in existence today.
1: Great story. Great story. See, th- those are the things that once you learn something like that, uh, the thing that stuck with me was the thing about platforms. It really is true, but also just how that, that aha moment for, um, you know, for, for e-ink where Jeff Bezos kind of picked it up and was willing to listen, they were going nowhere. They were going to go under, um, yeah. if it hadn't been for that lucky stroke. So this is one of the reasons why I like to invest in startups. Is that with business? There's always downside surprise. You know, most traded companies, if you're you know invested in Abbott or you name it, if it's a large uh, traded company, the surprises are for the downside. You know, there's a lawsuit, there's a this, there's a that, blah 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 blah. blah. There's no, you know, they're not going to discover a new line, a product line that they didn't have before. But with startups, these guys were nowhere. They were dog meat, and all of a sudden they're on track to a four hundred million dollar exit. Because Jeff Bezos picked up their e-reader.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing success story. And quite a story, huh? Classic stories of, you know, there's so much innovation that comes out of the Boston tech ecosystem, but just kind of flies mm-hmm. under the radar where e-readers, digital readers that e-ink didn't exist, we wouldn't probably have, you know, things like the iPhone now.
1: Yeah, well, Boston Boston doesn't do consumer. Boston mostly does B2B technology. The internet, you know, the, was basically built in Boston.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm.
1: BBN, the Bolt, Beranek and Newman, or BBN, those are the guys who sort of built the you know, the beginning of the internet. And uh, nobody knows about it. But it, it's funny. You know, the BBN people, every once in a while, I get them on the podcast. And there's always an interesting conversation to be had about BBN. But anyway.
0: So how, how did you get into podcasting and, and well, a little bit about your <laughs>
1: I got into podcasting because I trained as an engineer. And I never really worked as an engineer. I went into finance. I was in a large international bank involved in international finance for many years. And then I went to work at a private company here in Boston that was dealing in the same area as the, as the bank, but uh, for its own account, a company called Turan Corporation. So basically, I, I had 30 years of experience in finance, and I made some money doing that investing in the distressed debt of third world countries, countries like Brazil, Russia, Nigeria, and so forth. And that business kind of came to an end uh, around 2010. And I was kind of casting around for something to do. And you know, it hit me that some years before, like back in the early 90s, I'd invested in a technology startup in Boston. And it had done extremely well. It got sold to Microsoft. And then I kind of like, I invested in a few more. Because uh, in Boston you can't you know you can't swim swing a uh, dead microchip without hitting a uh, an interesting startup. I mean this, they're all over the place. I live in Cambridge, so they're all over the place. So I was kind of like, well, you know, this is really interesting. This is stuff I really like to do, and it's really nice and local. And this is the you know the place to be for technology startups with all the universities here. But I said, but I don't know enough about this stuff because I've I know about finding you know a mispriced bond and trading it and that kind of stuff, which is a very esoteric kind of knowledge. You know, building a company or looking at a company, see if it's going to succeed, you know, what kind of product, the markets it's going to reach and all that stuff. I didn't have enough experience with it. So I ended up joining a group here in Boston called Walnut Venture Associates, which is an angel group. A lot of those guys are founders. And every time I went on a due diligence meeting, the diligence meeting is when you get together, investors get to, potential investors get together with a startup to decide whether they're going to make an investment, an early stage investment in the company. And so you ask a lot of questions and, and it's like, it could be a two hour, three hour meeting and they go over what the company does. And every time I went into those, one of those meetings, I learned tons this stuff that I came out with. I was like, geez, I had never thought of that because I've been in business. I made money investing. I made my own money, you know, the, the money that I had, I made it investing, but not building companies. And so I said, geez, what if I could get these investors and these founders for an hour and just shoot questions at them and have them tell me their story? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I've done. I've, I'm, I'm heading to 100 episodes. I launch every two weeks because I have a very busy business life. Otherwise, uh, I have uh, multifamily real estate. That's how I make my living. And I'm invested in about 50-something, 60 startups. Uh, wow. and so and I'm on a board and, you know, so I'm uh, pretty busy with that. I didn't have the time to do it. I, I, so I ended up doing kind of a podcast, which is usually 40 something to, to an hour long, 40 something minutes to an hour long. And I love to get into the biography of the founder or the investor and to figure out what drove them to do it. And then try to get a little nugget to learn something. And I can tell you, I've become a much better investor and I've become a much better board member through this experience uh, with the podcast. Something else that's happened, I've connected a lot of listeners with uh, Walnut Venture Associates and other angel groups, kind of like a, a dope pusher for angel investing. Uh, uh-huh. and, and angel invest and An angel investing pusher. Uh, yeah. I've gotten, yeah, I've got a bunch of people and some really outstanding, outstanding members for Walnut, for the guys at Launchpad and so forth, uh, Boston has a lot of excellent, excellent angel groups. So it's resulted. And the other thing is that I have an investment syndicate. It's a list of people who invest with me in investments in which I have very strong conviction. For example, one company that I invested in, my syndicate my syndicate invested in, is a company called Savran Technologies. They've been interviewed on the podcast. And it's a platform technology, Very, <laughs> you know, has the same... You know, some certain qualities similar to e-ink in a sense that it's it has many, many different use cases and figuring out what is the first use case to develop has been a battle, but they've, uh, I think they're onto it and it could be really brilliant. And the beauty of platform technologies is that they, you have many shots on goal. You know, if your first attempt doesn't work, maybe <laughs> Jeff Bezos will pick up your your uh, your technology and, and make something out of it. So this is, you know, how I ended up uh, doing podcasting. Very cool. Yeah, 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 You know, before this whole COVID-19 thing happened, we we are, you know, by the way, everybody should know, we had planned this before COVID-19 happened. We were going to do a face-to-face interview. Keith, by the way, lives in Philadelphia, but he comes up to Boston because he has business here and business in New York and so on. And so he was going to be up here in Boston. I'm going to do a face-to-face interview. But then COVID-19 inter- intervened and the whole thing fell apart. And so here we are. Uh, recording on Zencaster, but still having a really valuable conversation. So Keith, well, a little biography. So so uh, tell me, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, so
0: I grew up in Hooksett, uh, New Hampshire. So I went to high school in Manchester and um, I went to Nichols College in Dudley, Mass outside of Worcester. So I graduated with a finance degree. Mm-hmm. But my dad, he, he was he was always an entrepreneur. So uh, I think I got that from him. He ran a leather coat factory in the mill yards of manchester
1: a leather coat factory wow
0: yeah like legit like making leather coats selling them to retail shops throughout you know up and down the east coast i guess and uh that's kind of how i learned my work ethics because it wasn't too long i was probably like eight years old starting to learn how to clean the leather coat factory so it was ten thousand square feet of <laughs>
1: leather craft,
0: you know threads and you know so Quickly, that became you know my, my my job. You know, after my brother and sister, uh, you know, kind of grew out of the job, and then after he couldn't face you know competition of manufacturing in, in other places like China, uh-huh. he had to close shop down, and he he became a landlord. So he owned a bunch of uh, apartment houses up in Claremont, New Hampshire. So that's how I learned how to perfect painting. So I can I, I'm not very <laughs> handy. I can fix too many things around the house, but I can paint. So I was I was doing that a lot. So, uh, but so that was the the family business jobs. But uh, after college, I was a uh, a tax consultant. So I worked for a firm for a couple of years, then went to KPMG. Oh, but I wasn't doing um, you know typical tax work. It was more real estate abatement works. Who were helping like Polaroid back in the day and Gillette and Liberty <laughs> Mutual
1: boy i sure could use some tax abatement yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean the uh, you know I, I i own multifamily properties so talking about right. tax abatement the sole reason that i raise i have to raise rents it's because of the cost of government energy prices go up and down you know the co- you know heating uh, gas the cost of gas it goes down goes up and so forth depending on the market uh insurance you know goes up little by little and so forth now the cost of government goes up every year every yeah. you know inexorably I'm actually thinking of kind of when I send the invoice to my tenants, sending them a breakdown of what they're paying for, you know? Mm. First, you're paying for, <laughs> for property taxes. Then you're paying for water and sewer, okay? Then you're helping to pay the mortgage. Then you're helping to pay this and that and so forth. And it's like just astonishing how cost just keeps galloping up. So I need some abatement, but, you know, they don't give you the time of day.
0: Well, that's what I was doing. I was uh, basically an appraiser for large commercial and industrial properties and fighting local you know, municipalities with the local assessor and fighting the taxes. Because this was in 94, 95, when the real estate market was uh, at a really rough patch. So everything was depressed. And, uh, I'm sorry, when was that? It was uh, 94, 95. 94,
1: 95. I remember... Real estate being on a rough patch in '87, '89 as well, because I was uh, I was in the banking, in those days. Yeah, I, 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 well, at least the mortgage market uh, was troubled. But uh, yeah, so so you were kind of like bouncing around. Uh, so being a tax advisor, and so how did you switch over to HR?
0: Uh, so I always wanted to get into technology. That was something I always enjoyed as a, as a child. Uh, so I wanted to get involved, but I you know, didn't really have that experience. And I thought maybe sales would be the path into the tech industry, but didn't have sales
1: experience either. You want to get in sales, kid? You need a sales book. Where's your sales exactly. book? Forget about it. You don't have a sales book. Forget about it. <laughs> exactly. So it just
0: so happened that a good friend of mine was working for a uh, staffing firm that um, was building up. A- full-time, like permanent division. And their master evil plan was to uh, uh, hire people from the big five at the time. I think it was because it was the big six, then it was the big five and then four. Hire people with that experience because we're going to recruit people out of the management consulting arms of those firms and place them at our customers so that um, they can hire contractors from us. Oh. And uh, it was a good plan, but it was right when uh, 1998 and the internet bubble was blossoming. So that was all of my customers was dealing with tech and a lot of uh, web professional services firms like Scient Razorfish, and IXL, you know, helping ramp those companies up. And, uh, you know, the internet bubble burst. And that's when I kind of went off on my own and uh, started my own firm.
1: <laughs> For me, those were difficult times. Two years before, 98, Russia melted down and we had a big position in Russia we had mostly sold the position, but I spent uh, a good year and a half closing these trades that were, were way, way, way underwater. I mean, I, the, the, I, it's, we sold stuff in the '90s, and the stuff was trading in the '20s, and so the buyers were very reluctant to close. I mean, they just put me through the ringer. And I remember, you know, the glory days of uh, tech, you know, in the late '90s, and everything, you know, zooming up and booming and so on. And I was struggling with with Russia, the the long term credit management (LTCM). When that whole thing burst, you know, we got caught up in that in a different, you know, situation from LTCM. But we survived because we weren't leveraged; we were investing our own capital, and so uh, we lived to fight another day and came out really well. We actually made money from all those positions that we we retained from those times. But (laughs) I've I've been there. I was. I remember. Being laid off uh, from the Bank of Boston earlier, before I, I joined my, my business partner uh, back in 1988, and being on the streets uh, at a time when it was really tough to find a job. So anyway, so continue the story. You know, so you got into uh, HR, and then the whole world fell apart with the tech bubble burst.
0: Yeah, the internet bubble burst, and um, you know, so I got reallocated within the same firm to become. I was actually, you know, because they would different projects They were becoming more of like a consulting firm. So uh, I was allocated as a frontline consultant to mm-hmm. advise at t Wireless on their 3G rollout. <laughs> which, <laughs> that was not my background, obviously, but it was a uh, person I was partnering up with was more the subject matter expert. I was more the just, you know, doing the, the PowerPoint stuff and doing interviews and gathering data. But uh, that, you know, I was flying down in New Jersey every week to, uh, to do that work. But uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I love dealing with entrepreneurs and, you know, my experience was helping on the people side. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a no brainer to go off and start my own firm. So I was living in uh, South Boston at the time and my girlfriend, now wife, you know, she, uh, was like, you should start a company, you know, start a firm." So, um, <laughs> you know, I did, uh, it was called Desero and, you know, I, You know, left uh, the firm I was at, it was called Darwin Partners. And, Uh you know, Dan Walsh was uh, the president of the company and he was very gracious because when I left, you know, there's non-competes and I was like, Mm -hmm. hey, this one customer called 170 Systems is still hiring, yet it's not really a customer that fits the model of Darwin anymore. Do you mind if I go off and do my own thing and take this customer with me? And he's like, go for it. Good luck and all that. So I was very gracious that they allowed me to do that.
1: Uh As my old partner used to say, a mensch, a mensch.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So I uh, serviced the heck out of 170 systems and started pounding the pavement and stalking venture capitalists on uh, you know different networking panels that they were a part of. And you know, I wasn't really at the board level. So I remember Larry Bond from General Catalyst gave me some great feedback. I'm sure he does not even uh, know this story at all, but I, <laughs> I remember it well. I was just like, "Hey, I'm Keith from Desero, and I help with you know staffing up tech companies." And he's like, you seem like a go-getter, good for you, but um, you're not at the board level. So, you know, the best thing for you to do is just, you know, just reach out to all the portfolio companies, CEOs, and tell them what you do because they're the ones in pain for what you provide. Yeah, And that was a great experience because I was basically spinning my wheels trying to connect with, you know, these people that were sitting at the board doing executive searches was on the radar and that wasn't there yet. But uh, once I started venture fizz, a lot of the content on our site was provided from venture capitalists that were already blogging but looking for additional exposure for their content mm-hmm. to a target of their eyeballs, which was venture fizz. So right away I, you know built a lot of credibility and kind of a peer-to-peer relationship with a lot of the investors in Boston that mm-hmm. ended up fueling my whole search firm as far as the search work we were doing. it was uh, mainly you know intros from the investors that was uh, product management and marketing hires mainly it was you know CMO, mm-hmm. VP of marketing, or VP of product or first product hire once the founder was stepping aside from leaving product and, you know, scaling a company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The content that you create is content that really gets people's attention because they're kind of like, yeah, I need to know what's happening in my job market. Who knows? You know, who, lo- who knows how long this job is going to go and so forth. You send out a lot of mailers and yet people read your mailers. If I, if I sent out that, those, you know, that many mailers, people would just be going to like, forget about it unsubscribe, unsubscribe. But if you're working, you always want to hear what's going on in the job market. And so you provide great content in that way.
0: I mean, that's definitely a key value that we add with Venture fizz because uh, you know we're not a traditional media company. Everything on VentureFizz is supported by our customers that pay a subscription to be on our site where they publish their employment branding page called a biz page. They get unlimited postings to our job board. And then they have access to our content series that are telling the story of a company, their their people, and their culture. So the, the challenge that most people have is they're heads down, doing their job, focused on building a company, product, whatever job they are in, uh, and then they poke their head up and they're like, oh, I'm looking for a job. What's going on in the Boston Tech scene or New York? Or, you know, it's uh, the, the company discovery piece is a challenging thing for most people because they just don't have the bandwidth to keep tabs on all that's going on. So when they come to Venture Biz.
1: And that's all you do is keep tab- tabs on companies. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, and you know, it all tracks back to a hiring of the common goal. Sure, but yeah, but that's but, yeah. part
1: that's part of your business is to know, as my late uh, sainted business partner, Robert, Robert P. Smith used to say, uh, who's doing what to whom for how much? Kiddo. <laughs> You going to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is that is really interesting. So, what are the big challenges for you, Keith, right now? What are the, what are the, the things that you would like to overcome that you are struggling with? Do you, do you care to share that?
0: I guess this statement's not going to make this evergreen content, but the pandemic that everybody's dealing with is number one right now. Companies are you know, uh, laying people off or pausing hiring, or they're, uh, you know, still cautiously hiring. But, um, yeah, you know, I was, I, I too, Jason Calacana, since we were talking about him earlier, he's, he's got a very uh, optimistic viewpoint on what's going to happen. So I'm uh, I'm siding with him, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, outside of that is, um, it's, it's just, you know, I've had to evolve the identity of VentureFizz over the past three years because, you know, it, it was a side project. It wasn't a full-time business. So I had to really hone in on what is our voice, what is the content that we're providing, mm-hmm. um, you know, because people would confuse us to be more of a traditional media outlet, and I understand why we would publish stories about startups. That you know, it was just I was always thinking that startups need an outlet to tell their story, and uh, it's almost like the farm system of uh you know for baseball where you need to groom these companies and they're starving for attention so we'll provide them a voice on ventures but um you know as i started to really focus on building the business those stories really didn't add value for what our core mission was nor were they getting the page views that one would expect for that type of content so um you know we just continue to sharpen the lens on what we do what's our value what what are we providing for our customers and what are we providing for our audience, which is you know mainly job seekers? So I, I feel good about exactly what we do now as it relates to the content that's across. You know, we do a lot of video now. Obviously, the podcast. There's a lot of uh, still photography with our office tours and Q and As. So um, all that's got a common theme of why that content's on VentureFizz versus before there was really no rhyme or reason why that was on there other than oh that seems interesting. So so that's been a, a challenge. Uh, being everywhere is a challenge because there's always different channels that kind of help, you know, build with the, you know, customer acquisition side. So the job seeker side, you know, we're a double standard marketplace. So we're always looking to engage with more of an audience that is going to come to our, our website and find value there. We have to really spread your, your wings across so many different channels and there's always new ones coming up. So, um, so that's definitely a challenge.
1: Yeah, I'm actually I'm pretty limited on the channels that I use. Mostly I, I use LinkedIn. I mean, I, I sort of tangentially I use Twitter and by the way, Facebook. But LinkedIn is is where I spend most of my time and is where I have the most impact because these little videos that I load, you know, on there for the guests in the podcast explaining the podcast, it gets easily uh four or five times the number of downloads that the podcast themselves get. And they drive downloads to the podcast. Uh, so, uh, and they're really easy to do, you know, 30 seconds. I like the fact that they play with a sound off on LinkedIn and you're kind of like, geez, you know, what's that person saying? You know, it, it, it kind of draws you in. All the other channels, I haven't found them to really be very valuable. Is there anything that you found to be particularly valuable? Uh, well,
0: I completely agree with you. So, um, you know, we measure, all the different channels, and by far LinkedIn is where we double, triple our time because the you know, one it's, that's where the audience is—it's you know professionals. Who we, uh, we do get a tremendous amount of value from things that we post to my feed natively, and then to the Venture Fizz company you know page. LinkedIn is number one on our strategy. Uh, Twitter is second, but that's been declining. And then Facebook and Instagram are just you know afterthoughts that were there because you might as well. They're not really strategic. It's But you know what? The, the number one part of our strategy is, is email. And you highlighted before, we do send out a lot of emails. It's all opt-in, so people are signing up to receive them. That's where we get the most engagement. So I always you know, crack up because the old is still very new again.
1: Yeah, here's a tip. If you're a company that has clients... The most valuable piece of of data you have is their email address and their name and the opt-in for them to allow you to communicate with them by email. Because if you rely on Facebook, if you rely on LinkedIn, if you rely on anything else like that, you're allowing these people to filter the information. You know, Facebook used to allow people to post to their feed. Uh, So if you were a store and you had people who followed you on Facebook, they would see all your offerings and so forth. No more. And so a business should be always, I mean, I, I'm not an advertiser for constant contact or MailChimp, but let me tell you, if you're any type of business, the first thing you should think about in marketing is building your mailing list. You agree with that, Keith Klein?
0: thousand percent. It's gold. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you do control your voice to your uh, customer, your consumer, Your for us, it's job seeker.
1: And you hear back from them. You hear back from them. I mean, it's it's like people, you email, sometimes they come back to you and say, hey, you took 13 minutes to get to the, uh, to the story, blah, blah. You know, like people tell you stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So yeah, I highly recommend, you know, use MailChimp, Constant Contact, uh, Privy for, you know, email grabbing. Uh, there's lots of tools out there that help you build up your email list. And that should be your A, number one priority. Like LinkedIn, even though, you know, that's still number one on our, kind of social strategy, sure. you know, they did change the algorithm for uh, video exposure, I think back in September of last year. So even that, you know, the views went down because they changed the algorithm. So you don't want to be reliant on a platform's algorithm to channel your success because it can change at the drop of a dime.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I've experimented with, you know, the format, try to create a little bit of visual uh, interest. You do much better than I do. But that, that seems to make a difference. Yeah, very interesting.
0: So Sal, so you're an active investor. How do you decide on what to invest in? And what's the you know typical criteria that you're uh, focused on as far as the type of company?
1: You know, I've been investing in startups since the early 1990s. And I've invested in, by this time, probably about 60 startups. And the criteria keep changing all the time. You know, as I look at my portfolio, I've invested in, in broadly biotech companies. I've also invested in the marketing technology space. I've invested in companies in the nanotechnology space, you know, various areas of technology. And it's becoming increasingly evident to me that where I should be focusing my energies is in biotech. And I'm just, I'm sort of looking closer and closer into investing just exclusively in biotech and not writing checks in any other area. Why? Because, you know, I've invested in some really successful uh, marketing technology companies, at least three or four of them that are doing really well. But when I look at the valuations, you know, uh, I'm up 3x, 4x in some of these. And, uh, and there's really no way for these companies to build really massive value because there are no barriers to entry. You know, you create a way of optimizing Video audiences for this kind of brand, somebody's going to copy what you're doing and they're going to eat half your lunch. So I'm really now, now sort of focusing more on the kind of. Uh, I also happen to live in the center of the biotech world, which is Cambridge. And I've invested in a bunch of really interesting biotech companies. For example, I'm an investor in Squeeze Biotech, SQZ Biotech, which is a, a tremendously consequential company. Uh, because it has a platform technology, that word again, platform, that can be used in many different ways in helping people do things much better. For example, they received like $132 million from Roche to help Roche deliver a particular type of immune therapy for cancer. They didn't develop the therapy. Roche had the therapy before, but Roche couldn't make the therapy work without the technology that Squeeze has. And so this helps Squeeze build tremendous value. And they have lots of other areas that they're developing. And the company I mentioned before, Sovereign Technologies, which is also uh, working right now um, in, in something that can tremendously enhance the value of existing businesses um, you know, with its technology. So I look for defensible, you know, for moats, uh, t- technology that cannot be replicated by anyone else because it's patent protection. And then I look for technologies that can be developed with no more than five or six million dollars in early stage funding, uh, which is really what you, the most you can get from angels. And because VCs are doing less and less of this kind of financing, so you know, with four or five million dollars, a company that can get to the point where a strategic player, such as Roche, in the case of Squeeze Biotech, can come in and say, "Here, uh, I want to work with you. Let's do a multi-billion-dollar uh, deal." to develop this technology in this area because it's going to add tremendous value to us. So that's the kind of company I'm looking for. I'm really narrowing the focus towards biotech startups that are platform-driven and that are uh, that can be developed with not a lot of money. I'm not interested in something that's going to take $50 million before you can prove out the technology, you can bring the technology to market. Another one that I'm invested in that, that could fit the bill is something called Altrix Bio. It grew out of uh, this collaboration. Uh, there's a surgeon at Brigham Women's Hospital that was doing this weight loss uh, surgery. It's, the, it's the, the best weight loss surgery there is. It's, it's called Ruin-Y uh, gastric bypass. And it happens that this uh, weight loss surgery causes 80% of diabetic patients to go into remission. So they've created a Ruin-Y uh, bypass surgery in a pill, and they're testing that. And that is something that I hope will probably take no more than five or six million dollars to get to the point where a big strategic player will say, "Ah, we give a pill to people. You know, they, as long as they're on this pill, they're eighty percent of the of the client of, of the uh, patients will have their diabetes going through remission." That is a goldmine, mm-hmm. and that is something that can be developed. I hope with I, I've interviewed the founder, one of the founders, on the podcast, Nancy Briefs. You know, I've interviewed the founder of Savron. I've interviewed the founder of Squeeze. That's the kind of company that I want to populate my portfolio with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned it's, it's high risk, but obviously the return is tremendous.
1: Oh, completely high risk. It's just, I mean, it's it's like you, these companies are, until they they hit it big, you know, they're like a few steps away from disaster uh, all the time. Right. But the potential is massive. That's the thing. I mean, you're involved with uh, later stage companies that are VC funded. Those are the people who are hiring. I mean, uh, the companies that I get involved with, I'm I'm sort of helping the company. It's like, I need a CEO, but I don't have cash to pay the CEO. How do I do it? You know, that kind of thing. So very good.